Rob, what are you doing? We need to start the podcast. Andy, I'm moving this piano. It's in the way. You need help. You'll hurt yourself. And what happens if you can't work? If I can't work, I'm not sure. What can I do? Rob, you need income insurance. So who can help me? I use my accountants, Quantify Accountants and Bondi Junction. Have you heard of them? The ones that spell quantify with a PH. That's them, quantify, as in Q U A N T I P H Y. Look, they're terrific. A medium sized four partner firm who specialise in tax advice and compliance and retirement and investment advice. They also have other divisions like mortgage broking and a superannuation division. They're just above the exchange in Bondi Junction and they're not your stereotype boring accountants. They may not be hip but definitely modern. Okay, I'll call them just after moving this piano. Okay, just watch the stairs. (laughs) Quantify Counters, proud sponsors of Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. Hello and welcome to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast. My name is Andy Bromberger. And I'm Rob Caldor. Andy, we have made a lot of podcasts now. What is this Coffee, Cake and Culture all about? Okay, so Coffee, Cake and Culture, the music podcast, is looking at various aspects of music. This series is looking at the instruments of the orchestra. We've looked at all the families of the orchestra. We've looked at some pretty bizarre instruments. And today we are looking at the piano. I know the piano like everyone. I know chopsticks. Oh, good. I'm very pleased. So I'm very excited to find out a bit more about the piano origins and where it fits in with the orchestra. Rob, before we discuss the piano, we need to talk about cake. Yeah, I I smelled something because I came into the studio, Andy. Mm, So this is a new slice. I don't think we've done a slice before, but this is something that I sort of discovered Oh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think I've probably made it about a hundred times in the last couple of weeks. It's a strawberry and raspberry slice. Hmm. I, I feel like strawberry and raspberry are often not together. They're kind of a bit like cats and mice or cats and dogs, yeah. the opposites. Yeah. This is obviously you put, well, in, the, in summer you can use fresh strawberries and raspberries or in winter you can use frozen. And I really don't like cooked strawberries, but... This is actually really yummy. It's not sweet. So I have lots of people who come to my classes who go, oh, I'm not such a sweet tooth. But they've all loved this. And so what it is, it's sort of a pastry down the bottom and then you put lots of fruit on top of it. And then the leftover pastry, you sort of crumble and you put over the top of that. And then you put chocolate on it and then you stick it in the oven and it's very, very yummy. I mean, Andy... I know there's a detailed recipe somewhere for this. (laughs) Yes, there definitely is. You mean you can't get it just from that? So, yes, the recipe and a picture of this slice will be up on my website, coffeecakeandculture.com.au. Andy, we're loving this podcast, but, hey, everyone, let your friends know about it. So, Apple, Spotify, it's everywhere. It sure is. As we always say, we're very much enjoying doing it so we hope you are enjoying listening to it just as much where do we begin with the piano if we think about the categories of instruments we have instruments that are hit let's think of a drum we have instruments that are bowed let's think of a violin we have instruments that are plucked let's think of a guitar and we have instruments that are blown let's think of the woodwind and the brass but about 300 years ago 
a hybrid instrument burst onto the musical scene. Now, this instrument completely changed music and it gave music really to the masses and became the ultimate accompanying instrument for soloists, both vocal and instrumental. And it also became the instrument that composers started to use to write symphonies and it became the home entertainment unit before the television. This instrument is really in every nook and cranny around the world. Unlike most instruments, it didn't evolve over time, but it was literally invented. Just like the steam engine, this instrument shows man's ingenuity and imagination. And we are talking about the piano. Okay, so it was invented. It was invented. So there are a whole lot of instruments leading up to it, which we will talk about. But then in about 1700-ish, it was invented. And it is an amalgamation of a whole lot of things that gave us what we call the piano. We're going to have to look at a whole lot of different instruments. We're going to look at a whole bunch of instruments that are plucked. And then we're going to have a look at a whole lot of instruments that are hit. And then we're going to talk about the piano. So there's a whole wind up before we get to the piano themselves. But just visualize for me an instrument that has a lot of strings. It's about a tabletop size. It's got a whole lot of strings on sort of flat. The strings, the shortest strings and the thinnest strings are the highest strings. And it moves to thicker and longer strings. This instrument is something like a zither. Zithers are all over the place and they're very, very old, you know, instruments and initially they were plucked with their fingers and then over time they started to use a plectrum to pluck them so they didn't kill their fingernails let's have a listen to a zither Andy, try and explain my vision of that zither. It's sort of somewhere between a harp and a guitar. Think of a small harp lying on a table being plucked, sort of like you would pluck a strings of a guitar. Yes, or a harp. Yes, you're absolutely right. So just think of that instrument and then stick a keyboard onto that instrument. So when you put your finger down on one of the notes on the keys of the keyboard, what happens is a little plectrum then plucks that key. It's, it's a mechanical device. Now, that, that type of instrument came about about in the Middle Ages. And the first one we know is something called a clavicatherium. They started in southern Germany and it basically resembles, as you said before, like an upright harpsichord. The keyboard is in front of you and then the instrument itself is like a tabletop on its side, right up in front of you. And it was an instrument that was extremely popular, really right up until the 18th century, although sort of not nearly as popular by then. And its strings went upwards. And it didn't have any way to stop the jangle of the keys vibrating up. They had been played. And so it has this sort of ghostly jangling type sound. Let's have a listen.
seems very traditional in its sound, like very ethnic. Yes, it it does have that sort of metally clangy sound to it, doesn't it? What's interesting about these instruments is that, as I said to you before, they're sort of upright, so the strings go up. And initially, the wood behind the strings was incredibly ornate and beautiful. This was an instrument that only the very, very wealthy had and would sit against a wall almost like an ornate painting as well as an instrument. It was really incredibly beautiful. The ones that we still have are a total disaster, but you can see how much gold and inlay and things like that would have been painted into these instruments. Really quite gorgeous. Okay, so it was definitely people bragging to have a... I would say so. I, I have a clavicavarium, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So de- de- definitely a status symbol of the early Middle Ages. Middle Ages. And the instruments that we still have are like from the 1400s, so very early Renaissance, but still they came about much earlier than that. So take that idea and now take that the strings that are upright and fling them down. So they're now more like a tabletop. And then we have the beginning of a whole series of instruments that are almost like baby harpsichords. And the two ones that we're going to be looking at are two instruments, one called a spinet and one called a virginal. Now, at the time, the spinet and the virginal, their names were interchangeable. We now distinguish them differently according to the shape of the instrument. So we say that the spinet had a small keyboard and then the strings were sort of straight out in front. Okay, and the virginal. And the virginal was more of a rectangle and you sat at either the right-hand side or the left-hand side and the strings went up and down across. Now you're going to ask why the virginal? Correct. Okay. So there's been a whole lot of reasons that they've thought about the name the virginal. The first is that they thought that maybe it was because young maidens in the court of the Renaissance played it and so they were virgins. Then they thought that maybe it was named after the Virgin Queen, as in Queen Elizabeth I, but they were around a lot earlier than that, so that's wrong. So the reason it's actually called the virginal is very boring. It's because the Latin word virga means a rod or a stick. So it refers to the jack that plucked the strings. So the jack plucks the virginal. That's (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we've got... Both those sort of mini harpsichords. That's exactly right. That's right, the the spinet and the virginal. And let's have a listen. Now, they both sound very similar to each other, so we don't need to have a listen to a spinet and a virginal. Let's just have a listen to one of them. does sound like a harpsichord. It does sound very similar, but the the virginal and the spinet are much smaller instruments. So if you go to a Baroque concert or a Renaissance concert and you see a harpsichord, it's quite a big looking instrument. It's not as big as a piano, but it's a bigger instrument. These are real tabletop sized instruments. They're not huge instruments at all. And when that jack plucks a string, it's plucking one string. So the sound is quite small because it's only binging one string. 
as this became much more popular and as spaces and castles and, and churches became bigger, they needed a bigger sound. And so we went from these small tabletop size instruments to what we call harpsichords. So much, much, much bigger, stronger, robust instruments. The harpsichord was really the principal instrument up until about 1700s and it had four to five octaves so it became bigger and bigger and bigger and instead of having one string being plucked it had two strings being plucked for each note meaning the sound was almost sort of double what the sound was in these virginals and these spinets sometimes they also had two keyboards so you would have a lower keyboard and a higher keyboard so that you could get a bigger range they hadn't worked out at this stage that you could have the big keyboard like you do on a piano so it was a much smaller type of keyboard so there'd be one and then another one sort of placed on top and was it both the black and the white notes of the piano was it chromatic yes it was very well done yes fantastic but the black and white that we have today with the white always being down the bottom and the black being up the top that wasn't nearly as as strict as we have today it was basically whatever they had a in abundance. Sometimes they weren't black and white, sometimes they were wood, different colours woods. So if they had more ivory, then the more notes were ivory and if they had less ivory, the bottom would be ebony and the top would be ivory. So it all just depended on what they had, not nearly as as strict or universal as we have today. Okay, interesting. The harpsichords of Germany were much, much bigger than the harpsichords of, say, Italy or France or England. They were much smaller instruments, but the size of these harpsichords actually even changed depending on whether you're talking about the southern areas of Germany or the northern areas of Germany. It's Nothing is as standardised and precise as we see them today. The harpsichord was really not seen as a musical instrument as such It was seen more as a beautiful status symbol of your wealth and your place in society. So these harpsichord makers were actually part of the artisans guild rather than the music makers guild. So in the Renaissance and the Baroque period, you had to be part of a guild if you were a an artisan of any type. So the harpsichord was seen as part of the arts rather than seen as part of the music because these uh, harpsichords were ornate beyond belief. So they also were a big flexing of your status symbol. Oh, my Lord. If you go to the Met in New York and you go to the instrument area, there you walk straight in and there is a harpsichord which is gold. It is so heavy and it is literally all gold. This was showing the people who was boss. The problem with all these instruments is that because the strings are being plucked, it's impossible to have dynamics. What do you mean by dynamics? Dynamics mean loud and softs because the process of plucking the string means that it doesn't matter how strongly you pluck or how softly you pluck, the sound is always going to be the same. The dynamic is always going to be the same. So what we find in music of the late renaissance and the baroque that use harpsichords because composers can't use dynamics in this instrument they write the music sometimes thicker and sometimes thinner so your oral perception is that you are hearing louder dynamics and softer dynamics but in actual fact what you're actually hearing is thicker texture 
and thinner texture. So I want you to listen to this Scarlatti. This is the composer who wrote it. And what I want you to see is how your ear is tricked into sometimes thinking that there is louds and softs. But in actual fact, all we're hearing are high notes and low notes and thicker textures and thinner textures. It is a bit of a trick of the year when you listen back because the actual volume is the same but it feels a bit louder and softer at various stages. And so this is what composers had to try and trick the listener into believing they were listening to dynamics and instrument makers and performers tried to get dynamic in these instruments they'd put cloth on the strings they would move the strings they tried a whole lot of things to give dynamic but dynamics are impossible it's just fundamentally impossible it sounds like there was a bit of a like similar to getting to the moon a bit of a race to build the dynamic keyboard well interestingly at the same time as all this was happening there were another bunch of keyboard instruments which did have dynamics but they produced sounds in a different way that gave dynamic if you pluck a string there's no dynamic if you hit a string there is dynamic if you hit a string heavily you're going to get a louder dynamic. If you hit it more gently, you're going to get a softer dynamic. So just as we had the zither as sort of the prototype to all of these instruments, we also had a prototype of a stringed instrument that was hit. And that was called a dulcimer. If you have ever listened to anything that sounds sort of like the Knights of the Round Table or Lancelot or Guinevere or anything like that, that's what it sounds like. So what this is, it looks very similar to a zither, but instead of them plucking the strings, they have little hammers that hit the strings. Imagine someone sort of hitting the notes as opposed to plucking it. You can hear the difference in the tone. You can hear the difference in the tone, but you can also hear dynamic. So just like we went from the zither and then we stuck the keyboard onto the zither and we ended up with a clavicatherium, so the same thing happened with these instruments and we ended up with something called a clavichord. Now, a clavichord is basically a dulcimer with a keyboard added and the way the strings are hit is that you press one of the keys and then there's a mallet that sits underneath the strings and hits the strings. And because of this, it's sensitive to the touch. Because of this, if you press hard, you can get a louder sound. And if you press softly, you can get a softer sound. You can also do some other weird little things like you can wobble the key and get sort of a wobbly effect. It has all these little extra little bits to it. And the clavichord really had the most beautiful, beautiful sound. The problem with the clavichord was that its dynamics went from very soft to almost inaudible. So from very soft to very, 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 very soft. 
So they were beautiful to be played in a small salon by a young woman who was serenading or just having a nice time. But it was an instrument that was you could never use it as an accompanying instrument. You could never use it in a bigger space because you just would never hear it. So amplification is a problem. It is a big, big problem. But as I said, had an exquisite sound. Let's hear the clavichord. between the clavichord and the harpsichord is that the clavichord hits the strings and the harpsichord plucks the strings. And the harpsichord, because it has two strings rather than one string, has a much bigger sound than the clavichord. But the clavichord can give us louds and softs while the harpsichord can't. Solving one problem but creating others. People were very happy with the harpsichord. You know, it wasn't like they were going, oh, we need to do something here. The harpsichord was it. They were very happy with the harpsichord. There were some instrument makers who wanted to have the the expressiveness of the clavichord, but also the power and range of the harpsichord. As we know throughout history, if you want to have a big invention, you need to have someone with a big pocket and a big purse. And luckily in the late 1600s, early 1700s, in Italy, there were just these people. We have Cosimo Medici and his son Ferdinando. Those Medicis were very good to the creative sector. Especially Ferdinando. Ferdinando was this really incredible bloke who was just fascinated in science and fascinated in the way things were built and how things came about. And in fact, he was, and he was also, as you said, a huge patron of the arts. What he decided to do was not just get a world-class art collection. He decided to get world-class artistic people. So he got the the best painters and sculptors and clockmakers and printers and restorers and craftsmen of all types. And he said, come and work for me. And he had this huge sort of Barney warehouse and he said, be creative. It's quite Phenomenal. The guy he got to curate this whole thing was a guy called Bartolomeo Cristofori. So he was like sort of his general manager on the ground making this creative space. Yeah. And Bartolomeo Cristofori was a brilliant instrument maker. He had made a heap of harpsichords. He'd restored instruments. He was really number one instrument maker at the time in Italy. And he really initially said, no, I'm not interested in this. But he was persuaded to have he to be the curator. But he also then complained, this is funny, he complained to Medici that it was just too noisy. I mean, you can even imagine how noisy this place must have been. And he said, you know, I'm only going to do this if you give me my own space. And so Medici gave him his own workshop basically and we still have bits and pieces from his workshop and it really looks more like a laboratory than a workshop it's just got 
all these, sort of like Leonardo da Vinci, you know, all these half-made things, all these prototypes, all these half-inventions that he tried to come up with. But in 1700, described in the inventory of the Medicis was, it says, Bartolomeu Christofori's harpsichord, newly invented, that is capable of playing louds and softs. Quite a marketing document, actually. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's, it's got the core, you know, product features and it's a bit of branding. That's it. I mean, this is a huge invention. He invented a harpsichord that can play louds and softs. How did he do that? Innovation's always celebrated. Absolutely. So what he did was he took the skeleton of the harpsichord and he put in that harpsichord the action, the hammer action of a clavichord. So the hammer action being the fact that the string is hit by a hammer rather than being plucked by a plectrum. And we have a completely new instrument. So many of these inventions are hors d'oeuvres. Well, a deux, if you've got the size of one and you've got the action of the other, we'll stick them together. But to have that ability, to have that thought process to do it is often so remarkable. And so what he did was took the harpsichord, got the clavichord, stuck them together. But now you're going to have heaps of other problems. And what we see is the incredible genius of Christophery to overcome so many of the hurdles that come in the way of sticking these two instruments together. Things like the fact that if you have an instrument that's hit and you're going to have the sound, the sound's going to reverb over and over and over and over and over again. You need to somehow stop that sound. Well, he invented a dampening technique that didn't stop the beauty of the sound singing, but stopped it enough that you could then play that note over and over and over again. He did something called an escapement action where when you played the note, this little crook went back down a little bit. So if you needed to play it again, it was able to play again. All of these little things that totally change the whole concept of keyboard instrument. Now, I want to play for you a little bit of Howard Goodall. This is Howard Goodall explaining this action of the Christophery. And this is a cross-section model of Christophery's action. You press the key here, it pivots on here, and it sends this little jack upwards, which moves this wooden strip and starts the hammer on its journey. But you see, you don't want the hammer to continue being pressed by your finger all the way up to the string, otherwise it'll dampen it. You want it to hit the string and fall away quickly, which is why this goes up towards the hammer and then falls away quickly itself. It escapes from the action, which is why it's called an escapement. Meanwhile, the hammer hits the string quickly and falls away, and this back check here controls its movement on the way down to stop it bouncing up and down and to allow it to fight another day. Every single piano since owes a huge debt of gratitude to this brilliant mechanism. Very ingenious and very Christophery, the Leonardo of the piano. Rob, I hope that made a little bit of sense to you. It's quite visual and I think we've all seen inside a piano to watch the action. So I can see that we're getting close to it. Absolutely. And what is so incredible, as Howard Goodall said, is that every piano today is almost exactly the same as this piano invented by Christoph Rins about 1700. What we also see is that it was so finicky and so difficult that later instrument builders tried to get rid of this idea because it was just so difficult. 
But in the end, they all came back to it because these were the best instruments and had the best sound. But you could play a single note over and over and over and over again and not have that reverb. It was as beautiful the first time as it was sort of the 10th time you played that single note. You don't realise how radical it is, but I think Mm. there's an element of control that you're saying is there. And if you actually look at Christofferi's piano, in fact, there's only three that are left and there's only one that's sort of playable and that's at the Met in America and New York. But if you look at them, they really, it looks like a coffin. You know, it doesn't have any of that brilliance of beauty or craziness of the harpsichord. You know, I said it was part of the the Artisans Guild. These are instruments for a scientist, for a, a musician, not just something to be stuck in a room and look beautiful. This is incredible. It had the most beautiful acoustics. It had a clever placement of the soundboard, the strings. There were two strings. There were high action. You know, it was really quite phenomenal. And almost straight away, we have pieces of music where for the first time on a keyboard instrument, the louds and softs are actually indicated. So what I'm going to play for you now is the first piece of music by a guy called Gustini who wrote this piece. It's going to be played on Christopher's piano and it's the first piece of music that to actually use louds and softs. actually hear that it's on the way to the piano. Mm, It sounds like a very soft piano. It's beautiful. Now I've got to tell you a very funny story about this piano. I've been talking about this piano for a very, very long time and I went to New York with my mum sort of a few years ago and we dropped our bags and she said, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to see my piano. So we marched off to the Met and we went into the room and, you know, everyone is ooing and ahhing at this gold harpsichord and everyone's ooing and ahhing at this and that, that. And then sort of right in the middle of this huge area, there's Christopher's piano. And nobody's taking any notice of it. It's because it just doesn't look very exciting. It's got none of the the gold inlay or the beautiful painting or anything like that. It looks seriously like a black coffin. I took one look at it burst into tears, sat on the floor and howled for the next, I don't know, a long time. Well, obviously until security removed you. (laughs) But, I mean, so it's it's interesting that the bling didn't win. It was actually the simple, the functional that was so, you know, influential in years to come. Well, exactly. I mean, I had been talking about this instrument for such a long time. It was like seeing my greatest hero because here is this instrument that we all have pianos in our houses or in our grandparents' houses or in our parents' houses or all over the place. And they all come about because of this coffin sitting in the Met. I mean, it's really quite amazing. And in fact, when Christofferi made this instrument, it wasn't really very successful. People weren't very interested in it. They loved their harpsichords. And, you know, it was only that 
couple of them got out of Italy and ended up sort of in places like Germany and England that they actually became popular because nobody, as I said, they were it was interesting. I mean, Bach, why would I have that, that strange instrument? I, You know, I've got my harpsichord. My harpsichord does everything I need. I don't need this. So it's really interesting that here's this instrument that we perceive as one of the greatest instruments of all time. It was a very slow burn. It was still very peripheral at this stage. Mm. Let's move to about the 1760s in England. We have King George III and he marries Charlotte. And she is German. She's a huge patron of the arts. She learns piano from J.C. Bach and one of his sons. She meets the eight-year-old Mozart. He dedicates his opus number three to her. Haydn stays with her when he visits London. You know, she's really this huge patron of the arts. And this is a period in England where harpsichords are everywhere. But then we have this guy called Zumpa, and he's a German bloke, and he comes to England. He starts building these very small, square, portable pianos. They become the most popular thing in the whole entire world. You know, no one wants Pokemons. They all want these little pianos. And he literally can't make them quick enough. J.C. Bach plays it for the Queen and she goes, whoa, this is amazing. And harpsichords almost instantaneously become passe and everyone wants one of Zumpa's pianos. Harpsichord, as I said to you before, you know, it's this big instrument. It was very expensive because it had all this gold and everything. These were just these little, pretty inexpensive, relatively inexpensive instruments that everybody thought was absolutely brilliant. Now, can I read you something? After the arrival of J.C. Bach in this country... All the harpsichord makers tried their mechanical powers at pianofortes, but their attempts were always on the large side until Zumpa constructed small pianofortes of the shape and size of the virginal, of which the tone was very sweet and the touch with a little use equal to any degree of rapidity. These, from their low price and the convenience of their form, as well as their power of expression, suddenly grew into such favour that there was scarcely a house in the kingdom where a keyed instrument had ever had admission, but was now supplied with one of Zumpa's pianofortes, for which there was nearly as much call in France as in England. In short, he could not make them fast enough to gratify the craving of the public. It's like television is getting launched and Zumpa's the man. He sort of scaled it. He, he promoted it. He got the, the right promotional tools. He got the queen on side. Mm. And as a result, everybody wanted one. And then what happened was that a whole bunch of other German emigres came to England and started making them. So it was like, oh, you're going off to England? Well, if you're going to go off to England, you better learn how to make these small pianos because that's how you're going to get your money. So they all went over and they all made these small pianos for the English market, remembering that the English market was much more interested in music for the domestic rather than for the concert. So let's have a listen to the square piano. Thank you. 
Andy, this is sounding like the pianos that I grew up with. They're still wooden and they're still smaller and they still don't have the pedals that we would have today. They have these sort of things underneath the keyboard that you can press and that sustains rather than a pedal thing. But you're getting much closer to the sound that we know. You might be wondering why it's called a piano. Oh, oh, that was actually my next question. Well, piano in Italian means soft. Okay. And forte in Italian means loud. So a piano forte or a forte piano means loud and soft. So it was called a piano forte, but the forte dropped off through time? Yeah, exactly. So there was an instrument called a forte piano, and then there was an instrument that was called a piano forte. So both of them meaning loud and soft. Soft and loud, and I think that that shows the importance of being able to have dynamic on this instrument. I can see the radical change that it offered, and I imagine also the composers were really excited. Now, by the time we get to this point, absolutely, and that's a fantastic segue into my next little bit, which is 1777, and this is with the composer you may have heard of. His name's Mozart. Yeah, I th- that kid will get somewhere. So Mozart is invited to give a concert and he's not really interested in the person whose house it is or palace it is or anything like that. He's only going there because this guy has a brand new piano by a guy called Stein and the Stein pianos are new pianos and he wants to play, Mozart wants to play this new Stein piano and he writes this to his father. So I'm going to read you another quote this time by Mozart. And it says, At this time I shall begin with one of Stein's pianofortes. Now I much prefer Stein's, for they dampen so much better than the Rosenberg instruments. When I strike hard, I can keep my finger on the note or raise it, but the sound ceases the moment I've produced it. In whatever way I touch the keys, the tone is always even. It never jars, it is never stronger or weaker or entirely absent. In a word, it is always even. It is true that he doesn't sell a pianoforte of this kind for less than 300 gulden, but the trouble and labour that Stein puts into making it cannot be paid for. His instruments have a special advantage over others that they are made with an escapement action. Only one maker in a hundred bothers about this. But without an escapement, it is impossible to avoid jangling and vibration after the note is struck. When you touch the keys, the hammer falls back again the moment after it has been struck whether you hold down the keys or release them he himself told me that when he finishes making one of these claviers he sits down at it and tries all kinds of passages and runs and jumps and he shaves and works until it can do anything this is what he wrote to his dad about the brilliance of this instrument it shows an absolute appreciation of the trade work and artistry involved in creating these devices. Even more than that, if you know Mozart's repertoire really well, you can see that after he plays this Stein piano, it completely transforms the way he writes because he now can write piano music that it can have be much more expressive because he can write for an instrument that can give him this expression. There's no point in writing expressive music for an instrument that can't give you expression. And it sounds like this extra dimension is the key to adding nearly emotional input into music. That's right. Well, into keyboard music. So, you know, a violin and all the other instruments can give you louds and softs. The only instrument that was unable to give louds and softs was the harpsichord. But the fact that you now had a keyboard instrument that could give you as many nuances and subtleties, because the harpsichord, as as great as, as it is, 
Because it can't give you dynamics, it's harder to give you expression. But now we have an instrument, a keyboard instrument, that gives you expression. Interesting. Mozart was at the forefront of the popularisation, I'd imagine. Well, he was just such a genius. He wanted to know the next advancements. You know, what's going on? What's the next way? How can we get this instrument even better and better and better? So Zumpa was good for the aristocrat, but Stein was really good for the powerful musician. So that's what was so fantastic about it. And as a result of this, we have this new piano, which is now becoming so popular as we move out of the classical period, sort of into the, the romantic period. Composers find that the piano is fantastic for so many other things. Like, it's a perfect instrument for accompanying. If you play a piano with a voice, it sounds fantastic. If you play a piano with an instrument, it sounds fantastic. So what I want to play for you next is, first of all, I want to play you a little bit of Mozart because that would make sense. And this is actually Mozart playing on a Stein piano. Not Mozart himself, but Mozart's music being played on a Stein piano. Pianos look the same as they do now at those stages? So they were smaller, they were not nearly as beautiful looking, and they were wooden, they're all wooden inside and out, so they were a much more gentle instrument than the instrument that we have today. Rob, what I want to play for you now is the piano being used as an accompanying tool. I want to play you a bit of Schubert, where the piano is accompanying a voice. And then I want to play you a little bit of Schumann, where the piano is accompanying a violin. Because where we're going to now is that the piano is around. From the, from the late classical period on, the harpsichord has disappeared. Nobody is interested in the harpsichord. Everybody is now obsessed with this instrument that's been around, but has now suddenly become so popular. And they are discovering how many amazing uses there are for this instrument.
can see how the piano is both a, a great accompaniment for voice, and that was mm. beautiful, the mm. Schubert, and also obviously the violin. And what we see from the classical period on, so these are obviously pieces from the Romantic period, but what we see from the later part of the classical period is that the piano starts to become the instrument of accompanying other instruments. But as well as that, it also becomes this incredible solo instrument because what composers from Mozart on discover is that there are so many voices and so many sound qualities and so many emotions that can be heard in this one instrument. And the guy who took this instrument and took it on a ride like no other was Beethoven. So when Beethoven started writing his piano pieces, say in 1790-ish, the instrument was like the instrument that we were looking at with the Mozart. It was small, it was wooden, it didn't have a huge range of keys. But by the time Beethoven dies in 1827, the instrument is entirely different. It's now ironclad, it's now got metal strings, it's now a much bigger and much more robust instrument. One of the reasons being is because Beethoven would bash his instruments so much that he kept on breaking them. And so, you know, there's this real discussion about which came first, the the chicken or the egg, which came first, the better instruments so that Beethoven wouldn't break them or Beethoven's music demanded better instruments. You know, who knows which came first? But the result was that by the end of Beethoven's life, the instrument is a very different beast than it was before. Is this the origin of the grand piano? So the piano becomes grander. Yes, absolutely. Let's listen to the Beethoven, and I want to get back to what you've just asked. Sonata, but very, very, very expressive. I imagine when, the, as the piano was getting more and more popular, I'm thinking about how the brain develops and the ability to, you know, isolate different the hands and fingers and do different things in different rhythms from the left and the right hand. You see, that's very interesting because you didn't know what I was going to say. If you think about the technique of a harpsichord. If it doesn't matter whether you push down hard or you don't push down hard on a harpsichord, your technique doesn't need to be very strong, as in pushing down on the keys, because it doesn't make any difference. So Mozart's time and probably through Beethoven's time, musicians would use their fingers when they played because they hadn't changed the technique really from the way they played harpsichords. But when we move through the Romantic period and piano becomes sort of the instrument, the composer list starts literally to change the technique of playing the piano because he realises that if you put your body into the playing of the instrument, you are going to have more force onto those keys and having more force on the keys is going to create a bigger sound. 
So it's List in the 19th century who changes the whole concept of the physicality of playing the piano because he sees these big, huge instruments. And what you just said before when you said, you know, is this where you're starting to get to the grand piano? What we see in the 19th century is much less uniformity of instruments, that there are big instruments, there are little instruments, there are upright pianos that are small, there are upright pianos that are big, there are grand pianos that are grand, and there are grand pianos that are, are less grand. And so there's much less uniformity of instrument than we have today. So if we look at the difference between Chopin and Liszt, Chopin didn't like performing in crowds. He much preferred performing for small, intimate gatherings. And so the piano that he played was small and intimate, perfect for a salon performance rather than public concerts. And his music was a favorite for the amateur musician who could then play his music in their own home. We also see in the 19th century, and I know we've talked about this before, that in the 19th century, nationalism becomes so important. And so you have composers like Chopin, who writes mazurkas, he writes polonaises, he writes nocturnes, all reflecting his Polish roots. So let's have a little bit of a listen to Chopin. It's, it's developing, getting maturity as an instrument, but also the composers, how best to utilise its features. So it really does become a mature instrument in the 19th century. And I think if you were to ask any musicologist what the most important instrument in the 19th century is, everyone's going to say piano. Now, you, you said Chopin was very much into intimate performances. Mm. When do we get the big grand, the Liberace? When does it come out? Okay, so exactly the same time because we have Liszt. So Liszt was the huge showman. He had this very long public life. He gave heaps of public concerts. There was a condition that women got in the 19th century called Listomania. So, you know, we think about Beatlemania. Listomania was a condition way before, 100 odd years before we had Beatlemania. And women used to, you know, flock to hear Liszt play. They would they would try and grab a bit of souvenir. They would try and get a bit of his hair or his gloves. He was having affairs with every single person you could imagine. You know, it, everything you think about when you think of 20th century, pop stars double it when it comes to list I mean really quite quite incredible and if you think about the piano that he played it was iron framed it had tough wire strings it had a bigger range and it was an instrument to fill the concert hall so as Chopin played this small instrument for the intimacy of his friends. So Liszt played this big piano. I mean, when I say a big piano, I don't think Steinway of today, which takes in a huge concert hall, 
but something that is much, much, much bigger than what we would perceive today, that, that, than anything else that had happened up until that point. All right. It's inter- so interesting that List was a bit of a rock star. He was, and not only was he a rock star, Rob, he was gorgeous. Women just swooned whenever he played. In fact, when he gave his first concert at like, I don't know, seven or ten or something like that, he was in Vienna and they didn't believe that it was him playing. They thought there was some trickery. And so in the second half of the concert, they made the piano be turned around so that the audience could see him play because they thought that there was somebody else playing or something like that. They didn't believe a little boy could be actually playing as brilliantly as he was. Very emotive and expressive, those pieces. Mm. I always, I often think that Liszt sounds very contemporary, depending on how you play it. But, you know, I've heard interpretations of his music which sound like the interpretation that you just played. Very modern, very, like if I almost said to you who wrote it and then I said Liszt, you almost wouldn't believe me. Before we finish looking at the piano, I just want to talk about one other classical composer and that's the French composer Debussy. So Debussy is writing at the end of the 19th into the 20th century. And Debussy was really sick of everybody playing music the same way, basically. The very Germanic, the music of Wagner, the music of Liszt, although, you know, he wasn't German, but this very sort of strident music. And he wanted to create music that had a French voice. And he was very interested in the music of the gamelan. The gamelan is an ensemble of percussion instruments from Indonesia, from Java and elsewhere. And he heard all of this music in 1889 at the Paris Expo. And he was absolutely blown away with the jingling and jangling of sound. And so he wanted to create on the piano a totally different sound from everybody else. Instead of this sort of directness of sound, as we hear with the list, he wanted to have music that had a lot more sort of fluidity about it, where the harmonies melted from one to the other, something that was much less direct. Think of clouds, you know, that sort of waftiness of sound. And so he really took piano in a totally different direction. Let's have a listen.
got nearly a beautiful rhythm to it as well as the melody. What I find it so often with Debussy's rhythm is that it again is this sort of flowy sort of almost ambient sound to it. I always say that Debussy caresses you and smothers you like a, a gossamer blanket rather than sort of hitting you over the head which is what we often, I mean that in the nicest possible way, but we often hear with Germanic composers of the late 19th century, early 20th century. But then if we look at what happens in the 20th century, and I'm not going to get into it because we'd be here for another 10 podcasts, the piano becomes so important in the world of ragtime and then jazz and then popular music. If we think of the of Gershwin, if we think of all those guys writing songs, Jerome Kern and all these guys writing music for the piano. In the 20th century, piano goes into every single idea of music, every different type of musical genre. Piano is at the forefront. But just as a finish, I want to play you this because I think it is a fantastic summary of everything that we've been talking about today. I love to hear somebody play upon the piano, the grand piano, simply carries me away. All Smith, I mean he's Paul Smith, a jazz man from the LA. And you know Bushkin, I mean Joe Bushkin, plays for kicks instead of pay. We can all recognize definitely Frank Sinatra there, but I mean it's great piece and you know the piano is omnipresent. Absolutely. So that was so that was Frank Sinatra, Peggy Lee and Bing Crosby all singing about the brilliance of the piano. And I think that that's a fantastic conclusion in this story of the piano. Andy, thanks as always. I've really learnt a lot about something which has been, you know, in my life without really realising the whole background and where it was coming from. It was just a melody-making thing that sat in the corner of our house. I'd tinkle the keys every now and then. But the influence and the longevity of it is really interesting where are we heading next i feel like we've filled up the whole pit of the orchestra we have but there is one more very important person to talk about oh i think i know where we're going where i think we're talking tap 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 conductors you are talking tap 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 conductors that's right our next jaunt into the world of instruments we are going to look at the very important person the conductor. Let's get something to eat. The strawberry and raspberry slice. I will go and get you one. Thank you very much, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that romp through the keyboard instruments that turned into the piano. We look forward to you joining us next time. Remember to subscribe, let your friends know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to all your podcasts. That's right. Copy Cake and Culture, the music podcast. Thanks, Rob. Cheers. This podcast has been produced by eTales.com.au. That's www.etales.com.au. 